to follow him. So we come to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Uh, we find Jesus at a regular, everyday type of observance. He's been invited over for dinner, but not to a friend's house. He's been invited over for dinner by one of his enemies, this group known as the Pharisees. Now, we know, reading back into the Bible from 21st century eyes, we know the end of the story and that it's the Pharisees who were largely responsible for Jesus being sent to the cross. Though he had committed no sin, he had done no crime, they accused him of a guilt that was not his. And they, we look back on the Pharisees and see them as the bad guys. What you need to understand, though, is nobody at the dinner that day saw the Pharisees as the bad guys. They were the best guys. The Pharisees were those that everyone that day looked upon and said, if anybody's got God's ear, if anybody's got God's favor, if anybody's going to make it into the kingdom of God, it's going to be those Pharisees. Nobody's righteous like they're righteous. Nobody does religion as well as they do religion. Nobody is as good at keeping God's law as they are good at keeping God's law. And yet Jesus had already spoken a woe to the Pharisees when he said, You guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, shiny and gleaming in the sun, but inside you're full of death. And so Jesus was invited over for dinner, not just any dinner, but what I would call Sunday dinner. How many of you guys grew up with Sunday dinner? Every week after church growing up, we would go to my grandfather's house for Sunday dinner. And those were some of my best memories growing up. Uh, we would gather together, we'd have a meal together, and then we'd go out and play on the farm and, and get in a lot of trouble most of the time. But but Sunday dinner, and then we would come back together uh, and go to church on Sunday night together. That would, so Sunday was an entire day, and from church to Sunday dinner to playing on the farm and then back to church again and then get in bed and get ready for, for school on Monday. This was the regular rhythm. In fact, there were very few Sundays. I can probably count on both of my hands the number of Sundays growing up that we ever didn't do that. That was the norm. And Jesus here is invited over by one of the Pharisees for Sunday dinner. Now, they called that the Sabbath. That was the day of worship. Worship for the Jews was on Saturday as the, about the command of God that they keep the Sabbath holy. And they would come together for worship, and then they would have a dinner together. And they would invite folks to come and share with them in the afternoon meal. With, those, with that picture in mind of Jesus coming over for a Sunday dinner, would you stand with me in honor of God's word? As we look at these first 14 verses of Luke chapter 14. So one Sabbath, when he, that being Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. So Jesus is under the microscope here, if you will. They're paying attention to him to see what is he going to do. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, this is a very painful disease. I'll describe it more later. But just for now, now this is a man who is suffering greatly from the disease of dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Now, notice, they didn't ask him anything yet. But he's going to respond anyway. Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, and he said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? or not but they remained silent and then he took him the man with dropsy and he healed him and he sent him away and he said to them which of you second question which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a sabbath day will not immediately pull him out and we all think well surely anybody would do that if your kid falls into a well you're not going to wait till the next day right and they could not reply to these things. Verse 7. Now he told them a parable. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how, how they chose the places of honor at the table. And he said to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you, and he will say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. And here's a main idea for the day. Verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, to his host, he said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. <laughs> Father, today as we explore the truth of what it looks like to come not just to any table, but to come to your table, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and change our hearts, God. Because there is most certainly a little Pharisee in all of us. A little seeking of a place of privilege and position. And you are calling us to something so radically different. Help us to see it, to savor it, to desire it, and to delight in it. We ask in Jesus' name. So as Jesus is walking through this Sunday dinner, he takes this opportunity to teach, as he always does. And he specifically is teaching about it, what it looks like when we come to the king's table. And so I've entitled today's message at the king's table. What does it look like when we come together at the table of the king of kings and the lord of lords? How does he do dinner differently. Let's look at that this morning. First of all, as Jesus is teaching here, he's really being guided in his own teaching by a principle that comes out in the book of Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. God's wisdom given to man. There's all kinds of fun things in the book of Proverbs, and one of them is in Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, which says to us, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And that sounds very much like what Jesus says to them, right? Same kind of an idea. So this is an Old and New Testament idea that Jesus is putting forward. Those who seek to exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who walk in humility will be exalted. We find this all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, multiple times the same kind of ideas. The, the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is putting it on display right here that we might see it and so that we might walk in it. So what do we make of this dinner party? A ruler of the Pharisees, one of the up-and-ups, one of the popular people of the day. Again, someone that everybody else would look at and say, if anybody has got the right kind of relationship with God, it's this guy. He's invited Jesus over for Sunday dinner. And yet, Pastor Kent Hughes says something about this. It's so helpful to us as we look at this scene and understand it and make application of it in our own lives. He said this, the people at this dinner party were a lost bunch. Now, they didn't know it, but they were a lost bunch, tragically far from the kingdom. In their keeping of legalistic minutiae, in other words, the finest points of the law of God, they had completely missed the point of the law. They were so focused on the trees, they missed the forest. What is God's law all about? It's about learning to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's the summation of the law, isn't it? But we find at this dinner party, they weren't doing either of those. They weren't loving God well, and they certainly weren't loving one another well. The same illusion is rampant today. It's salvation by recognition, eternal life through temporal significance, immortality through notoriety. 
make a name for myself that I might go down in the history books. And yet how often, if you were to go back and look at old sets of encyclopedias, do we find folks that at one time made the history books that have long since been forgotten? Jesus is showing us where true importance is to be found. Let's walk through this together. First of all, in the first six verses, we see here a picture of the cruelty of self-exalting hypocrisy. The Pharisees were professional hypocrites. A hypocrite is one who wears a mask, who pretends to be something that they're not in reality. It's a play actor. They put on a good show, but the reality of who they are is very different against the whitewashed tomb. They look great on the outside, but on the inside they're full of death. And so Jesus here is going to peel back the veil for a moment and reveal to them by His grace their own hypocrisy. By the way, church, it is a gracious thing when God pulls back the veil so we can see the reality of our own hypocrisy. It's a gracious thing when God pulls back the veil so that we can see the reality of our own sin. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And here Jesus is going to be so very kind to them in these questions. And so they come together for Sunday dinner. They're milling around waiting to be invited to the table as the hosts would do. And all of a sudden, Jesus is face to face with a man who should not have been there. What is this man with dropsy doing at the dinner party? First of all, dropsy is a disease that, that, that results normally from organ failure. It, it is a, an accumulation of fluids in the torso. It's very painful, painful swelling. The body cannot deal with fluids and so they just accumulate in, in the torso and the, and, the, and the body just swells in a very painful and horrible way. It usually is related to liver failure or kidney failure or even heart failure. Now today we would maybe take a water pill or there would be treatments that would resolve this. In Jesus' day, this was, this was fatal. This was a disease unto death. And so this man is there, and, and he really should not have been there. You say, well, why shouldn't he have been there? Because in that day, if you were suffering in this way, like we talked about last week, the mentality was, if you had a disease, if you experienced a tragedy, if something bad happened in your life, their mentality was this. It must be because you had committed some kind of sin against God. They made a direct connect between a person's suffering and their sin. So they would have looked upon this man and said, he must have done something really bad that he's suffering in this way. And they would not have wanted to associate with sinners like that. So he wouldn't have been welcome at the table. So why is he there? Well, Luke seems to indicate that this was a trap that the Pharisees were setting. Notice verse 1. They come together for the party, and the Pharisees were doing what? They were watching Jesus carefully. Here's what they knew from their experiences with Jesus. They knew this. Jesus couldn't be long in the presence of someone who was suffering without doing something about it. Church, may that be said of us. May we be the kind of people that cannot be long in the presence of human suffering without seeking to do something about it. They knew if we invite this guy in, Jesus is going to see him and then our trap will be sprung. Well, what's the trap? The trap is this. You weren't supposed to heal on the Sabbath day because healing was considered to be work. The only, the only uh, way that you could heal on the Sabbath was if the particular malady, if that person was on death's door, literally, they weren't going to make it through the day, then you had the opportunity. That was, a, that was a loophole there. You could heal on the Sabbath if that person was, was not going to make it through the Sabbath. Well, it appears as though this guy, though he may have had a fatal illness, was going to make it through the day. And so their trap was sprung. Let's see what Jesus will do. They should have known what he would do because he's already done it three times in this book. 
In Luke chapter 4, it was a Sabbath day on which Jesus encountered Peter's mother-in-law in in the city of Capernaum, and she had a high fever. And again, in those days, for us, we just take some ibuprofen and go to bed. In those days, a high fever often led to death. And Jesus healed her on the Sabbath, and then she ministered to them in that day's Sunday dinner. You go over to Luke chapter 6. And you find Jesus interacting with a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath and bringing healing to that man. Luke chapter 13, the chapter right before this, we meet Jesus is ministering to a demon-possessed woman on the Sabbath. And he brings healing. And the synagogue ruler in chapter 13 is so ticked off. He says, couldn't this have waited till tomorrow? Couldn't she have come back tomorrow? Does healing really need to take place on the Sabbath? And then we come to chapter 14. This man with dropsy, with horrible swelling in his body, very painful, probably would have led him to death. And he is right face to face with his creator. With the only one in the room who can do anything about his condition. And the Pharisees are sitting back watching, what will Jesus do? But before Jesus does what Jesus always does, Jesus asks a question. Jesus loves loaded questions. And here is one. He responds, even though they never said a word, he responds to them and says, Hey guys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now what's he asking? What does the law of God say? See, there were two things operating in this moment. There's the law of God, and then there's all the laws of man that they had piled on top of the law of God. So the law of God says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's part of the Ten Commandments. The Sabbath was given as a good gift of God that we would not idolize work, that we would take a day of rest, that would be a reminder to us of our dependence upon God, and a day, one in seven, set aside for us to worship Him. To rest from our work and to worship God. It's a gift of God to us. By the way, people ask, do we still, should we still observe the Sabbath today? It is still a wonderful principle that one day in seven would be set aside that we would rest from our labors and worship our Lord. Now, we worship on Sundays because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's good for us. It's healthy for us. God gave a good gift in this Sabbath idea that one in seven be set aside for this purpose. So that's what God's law says. But then they had taken God's good gift and they had piled on top of it all kinds of man-made principles about, well, what does he mean by remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? What does it mean to rest from our labors? So they had come up with a rule book for the Sabbath. All kinds of man-made regulations about how much weight you could carry and how far you could travel and could you do this and could you not do that. There were all kinds of regulations that they had come up with in order to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what had happened was this. All their man-made regulations actually kept them from remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. You see, that's what man-made religion does. It always keeps you from true religion. Man-made religion and our rules and regulations always keep us from walking in what God has given to us. Three things here. First of all, false religion sets a snare for the righteous. Church, this is a warning for us. All of us are tempted to Phariseeism. All of us are tempted to add to the law of God in the pretense that we're seeking to keep the law of God. God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So here's a bunch of rules we're going to create in order to do that. Here's the problem. Those lists of rules end up keeping us from doing the very thing that the list of rules were created to help us do. That's how sinful and messed up we are. We're in keeping, in seeking to keep the law of God, we actually end up breaking the law of God. That's why Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Even in seeking to do what God requires, I end up doing the exact opposite. That's why we are so dependent upon His grace. And so they're seeking to set a, a, a snare here for the righteous one, for Jesus Himself. Because what do they know? 
They know that when Jesus comes face to face with a suffering person, he's going to heal them because he's been doing it now for 12, 13 chapters. He's been consistent in this. Whenever Jesus sees suffering, he's not going to allow suffering to continue in his presence. He's going to do something about it. And as his followers, again, let us be those kind of folks. So they think they're setting a snare for Jesus. And then Jesus, in one simple question, turns the snare on them. Well, guys, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath or not? What has he just done? Well, if they say, well, no, of course it's not lawful to heal a man on the Sabbath. They pull out their rule book and they say, here's the rule book, Jesus. Of course it's not. It says right here in paragraph 4, section A, line 6. <laughs> then what does everyone else at the party do? You bunch of heartless Pharisees. Can you not see how much this guy is suffering? It causes compassion to well up in the crowd and the Pharisees look like the jerks, which they were, by the way. But if the Pharisees say, well, of course, Jesus, of course God would have us show mercy and bring healing on the Sabbath, then they've, attention, then they've basically taken the rule book out of their back pocket and they've tossed it in the fireplace. And they weren't willing to do either one, so what did they do? We just won't say anything. We just won't answer the question. Parents, don't you love when your kids do this? When they give you a silent treatment, you ask one of these pointed questions, and they just try to play dumb. That's what's happening right here. And so what does Jesus do? It says he took him and healed him and sent him away. Now, before you think, well, why did Jesus send him away? That seems a little cruel. Couldn't you just invite him to stay for dinner? First of all, Jesus knew that that man would immediately become a pawn in their game. They did this later in a man that Jesus healed, the lame man. He became a pawn in the Pharisees' game. And Jesus knew exactly what they would do. So Jesus, in his grace, sent this man away healed and whole. And I guarantee you rejoicing and skipping down the street in the joy of the Lord that had become his strength and his salvation and his healing. Jesus sent him away as an act of grace that he wouldn't have to deal with these religious hypocrites any longer. And then Jesus asked them a second question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And the answer would have been, obviously, obviously we would do that. Your kid falls into a well and is paddling for their life. You're not going to look over the edge and go, Hey son, I hope you can doggy paddle till tomorrow because it's the Sabbath. Nobody's going to do that, right? No, you're going to go and get the rope or you're going to dive into the well yourself. Whatever it takes, you're going to get your son out of the well. But you see what false religion does is false religion worships the gifts instead of the giver. The Sabbath was given by God as a good gift to his people and they had taken and turned it into something it was never intended to be. It had become something that rather than being used to worship God was actually leading people away from God and keeping them from God. This man in particular was a graphic example of how their abuse of the Sabbath was keeping the work of God from being done in their midst. Because they wouldn't have even tried to heal this guy if they could because it was the Sabbath. And so Jesus says, hey, hey guys, if this was your son, wouldn't you want him healed? That's the implication here. Read it that way. If this was your son, would you really ask him to come back tomorrow just to keep your rule book? No, you wouldn't. If this was your son and you saw him suffering in this way, you would want him healed now. They were blind. He said, and even worse, you wouldn't even treat your animals this way. If it was your ox that fell in the well, you'd get it out of there. You care less about this man than you do your animals. It was an indictment upon them 
in hopes that they would see their need for His grace. False religion sets a snare for the righteous, worships the gifts over the giver, and false religion tends to prioritize policies over people. Jesus is wanting them to take their eyes and look at the man who is suffering and recognize his need, see his pain, and be willing to do something about it. Even if it meant hitting their knees before Almighty God and praying, God, bring deliverance and relief to this man. But they weren't looking at the man. They weren't seeing what God had put right in front of them. Their eyes were only on setting the snare for Jesus. They were more concerned about their rule book than they were about true righteousness. They were more concerned about their man-made principles than they were about the fact that the Prince of Peace was standing right there in front of them and he was getting ready to do a miraculous work. And all they were going to do was grumble about it because it was the Sabbath. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is eminently practical. True religion refuses to look past the suffering person just to maintain some spiritual principles. There will never be a disconnect between the mercy and grace of God and the law of God. These are not opposed to one another. And Jesus is showing them the Sabbath was given to you as an act of God's grace. Yes, it's in God's law, but it was a gift of God to you. And you've taken it and making it, made it something it was never intended to be. And by the way, church, we can do this with all kinds of things. We can do this with our church buildings. We can do it with our holidays. We can do it with our schedules. How many of us are so booked up in our schedules we don't have time for anybody even if they did need us? I want to encourage you to incorporate some margin into your life that the master of all the universe might be able to use you in a moment because you are interruptible. There's a pride in busyness that's exalted in our culture. They were eat up with it at this dinner party. We got things to get to. Dinner's coming. We ain't got time for the dude with dropsy. But Jesus had time. Let us be interruptible in this way. We got two more things to get to. I better move a little quicker. The cross of self-effacing humility. He begins to teach them a, a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This is a, a means, a story that Jesus used to communicate spiritual truth. He loved parables. And this is kind of an odd parable. It's kind of a living parable. It wasn't a, a story like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. It wasn't that kind. But he, he says that Jesus began to, to give them kind of a living parable here as they were beginning to be seated for dinner. Now, you have to understand that in the first century, the, the, the regularity of these kinds of dinner parties, there was a pecking order. You can kind of think about if your high school was anything like mine, there was a pecking order. There's the popular people, the jocks, and those who got a Mustang for their 16th birthday, you know, that crowd. And some of you guys, some of you guys were in that crowd, and I'm not condemning you for that. That just wasn't your pastor. I was in the nerd group. You know, the, the, the folks who were so concerned about grades and all that kind of garbage. And I, knew, I do realize it's garbage now. Some of you still think it's important. Paul called it rubbish, so I'm going to call it rubbish. And then there's the outcast group. There's a pecking order. And that's what happened at these dinner parties. They would, set up their, they would set up their seating in kind of a U-shape. You can imagine kind of a, a horseshoe shape. And at the bottom of that horseshoe, at the bottom of that U-shaped arrangement of tables is where the host would sit. He, he was the one that would get the, the place of honor. And then the, the seats at the right or the left of the host would be the, the second most honorable places. And then as you moved around the table from there, that you would go down in honor, down in priority, down in status to where if you were at the ends of the horseshoe... You you barely made it in the door. We don't really understand that, but, but you can think back to high school and you'll be reminded of what some of this looked like. 
And so what's happening here, the host calls them all to come in for dinner, and, and, and they're beginning to elbow each other. They're trying to get to that place next to the host because each of them wants to show how important they are. I want the seat of honor. No, I want the seat of honor. And they're elbowing each other to try to get to those places of prominence. And Jesus says, hey, hold up, guys. There's a much better way here. And he begins to show them what true humility looks like. Now I want you to understand this morning, his lesson for them is not chiefly social, it's spiritual. Don't miss this. If you think he's just giving them advice for a dinner party, you are missing the whole picture. This is not just about dinner party etiquette. He is trying to show them what it looks like to come to the king of kings table. To come to God's table, he's saying, it's so very different from this. You guys, you're doing it all wrong. Let me, let me demonstrate for you what it looks like to come to the king's table. I told you when I was growing up, every Sunday, we went to my grandfather's house for Sunday dinner. Some of my best memories happened, and some of my worst whoopings happened as a result of Sunday dinners at my grandfather's house. But one time a year... We would come together for an extra special dinner, Thanksgiving. That was a big deal on my dad's side of the family growing up. We always, we would not gather at my grandfather's house. We would go just down the road to my aunt's house because she had this thing called the formal dining room. That's not a big thing in houses anymore, but some of you remember when they, some of you still have the, the formal dining room. That's, you don't eat there all the time, but that's for special occasions. And I can remember as a little boy going to my aunt's house and, and seeing the formal dining room, seeing uh, the, the table that had 10, maybe 12 chairs around it, and they were, it was nice, and it had the white tablecloth, and she had brought out all the fancy china that she got when she and my uncle got married, and it had the shiny silver, not the regular stuff that was all dull from regular use, but the kind that you only brought out a couple of times a year, and it had the fancy stemmed glasses and, and the cloth napkins. I had never seen cloth napkins anywhere else at that point in my life but my aunt's house on Thanksgiving. It was a beautiful sight, and some of you have seen tables like that. Some of you all have, have the gift of creating a table like that. It's a beautiful picture. And I remember as a kid, man, you wanted to sit at the formal dining room table. And I can remember a couple of Thanksgivings where there would be a, a scrambling like this. Now, not among the adults. They knew that they had a table, a chair at that table. Uh, but there was, a, there was a secondary table that was there in the house. It was, it was an old uh, card table that was half falling apart with metal chairs. And, and, and that was brought out from behind the door in the spare bedroom and set up for the kids, the kids' table. And by the way, the kids didn't get long stem glasses. We got red Solo cups. And we didn't get fancy china, we got paper plates, and we certainly didn't get cloth napkins. It was the regular old, in fact, I think we got paper towels that were pulled off from the roll. And the, the, you, you, it was not fancy at all. And I can remember a few Thanksgivings when I was in early elementary school where there was a, a little scrambling that took place as we are getting ready for dinner. They would always get the kids' plates first. And then I had a couple of older cousins that were a lot bolder than I was. And they would try to gain a place at the dining room table. And so what they would do is they would go through, they would get their food, and then they would go and they would kind of sneak in and they would try to sit in a strategic place where maybe they would go unnoticed. Like they would sit over on the corner with their back to everybody else. Where maybe nobody will notice that they're there and they'll just kind of get to live out there at, at the fancy table with everybody, all the important people, and not have to be shuffled off to the kids' table. But inevitably, someone, usually my grandfather, the patriarch of the family, the one who sat at the head of the table, carved the turkey, did all those things, inevitably, he would see one of my cousins and he would say to them, what do you think you're doing? This is not your table. And then they would have to slink off and they would have to sit at the kids' table, but now they've got the worst seat. There was one chair, there was one old wooden chair that had a crack right in the middle and if you moved wrong, it would pinch the fire out of your butt. I'm not making this up. You had to just sit perfectly still 
because it would pinch you, and they would end up with the butt-pinching chair at the kids' table, the lowest of the low, and, and there was a shame that came in that moment because they, they sought a position that was not theirs. I think that's the picture of what Jesus is talking about here as they're elbowing you, they're trying to get to the place to sit next to the host to show how important they are, so, so how, show how, how prominent they are, how, how everyone else should look to them as vitally important to the world. And he said, some of you guys are going to get shuffled off to the kids' table. There's two main points here that I want you to see. Verses 8 and 9. These are so huge, and we could spend a long time talking about the implications of this in the Christian life. This is, this is one of those cornerstones of the Christian life that we need to grow in understanding of because our culture is exactly the opposite of what I'm about to put in front of you. First of all, God will humiliate the prideful. I didn't say humble. God will humiliate the prideful. By the way, all of us have a pride issue because we have a sin issue. And we will either submit our pride to God willingly in confession and repentance and replacing that with a Christ-honoring, Christ-driven humility in our lives. We'll either do that willingly or one day the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will be humiliated in that day if we've not trusted Christ by faith and walked in repentance. There's coming a day when all of us, we will, if, we, if you continue in your pride, continuing to cling to your, your self-deserving obligation to make a name for yourself and and to make a place for yourself in the world at the table. God will humiliate the prideful. It's a warning here. But don't miss the fact that once again, along with the warning, there's a promise. I love that throughout the Bible, God puts warnings and promises right side by side with one another. And that's what he does here. While God will humiliate the prideful, he will also promote the humble. The last will be first. Haven't we heard that? Those who are faithful in a few things in this world, they may not look like much, but those who are faithful in a few things, I'll give them many things. He says to the church at Corinth, not many of you are much of anything, but you will be much in the kingdom of God if you continue in faithfulness toward Him. This is the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. And in a culture that exalts pride, that raises up those who give their lives to making a name for themselves rather than making the name of their creator well known and worshipped. There's a culture that we are living in, the soup in which we live our lives. And in fact, it's so thick in our culture at this point, we don't even recognize it for what it is. We're so, think about it, we're so celebrity obsessed. Why is it in the last decade that we have become concerned with what pop stars think about political issues. I don't remember that growing up. Now, I know John Lennon had politics, but I don't remember that being a determining factor for how you voted when you went to the polls. But for many in this up-and-coming generation, they want to know what Miley Cyrus thinks about the abortion issue. By the way, I don't care. But you look at it, it's so prominent in our culture. You become an expert just by the fact that your name is known. That you've had a minute in the spotlight. Now you get to speak about everything under the sun. There's a ridiculousness to it. And yet it's the soup in which we live. And there's nothing new under the sun, by the way. The same kind of mentality was ruling and reigning in Jesus' day. And Jesus is showing them something radically different. James 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That's our response, to submit ourselves to God, to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. What a glorious promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is given as our instruction. Finally, this morning, we've seen the cruelty of self-exalting hypocrisy and the cross of a self-effacing humility. Let's talk about the crown of self-denying hospitality. Again, 
Hospitality was so huge in the first century, and I'm, I'm praying that it will begin to be huge in our midst again. The Bible, if you begin to just, I encourage you, go home on Bible Gateway or, or whatever that you use to study the Bible, go home and search the word hospitality and just read what the New Testament says about hospitality. It's a requirement for church leaders, by the way. It is exalted as something that, that, that it's, it's assumed that we would be regularly inviting others into our homes and not just folks that we know well and get along with, but the kind of folks that Jesus is talking about here, that we would use our homes as places of ministry for the Lord. And so Jesus turns his gaze to the host. And he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, because he knew he's going to do this again. This was regular practice. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Four groups there. Now, as he's saying, don't ever invite those folks. No, he's saying basically the, the tent sense is this. Don't just invite those kind of folks. Why? Because they'll repay you. Then you'll have received your reward. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the, brain, and, the, blame, and, the sorry, and the lame, and the blind, somewhere in there, that you invite those four groups. Why? Because they can't repay you. They've got nothing to repay you with, and therefore you'll receive your reward in the last day at the resurrection. Let's talk through this real quickly. First of all, he's saying this, the recompensed have already received their reward. This is Matthew chapter 6 when he says, when you pray, go into your prayer closet where no one sees and pray to your Father who is in heaven and your Father who is in heaven will what? He will reward you. But if you go out into the, into the streets and pray like the Pharisees do so that everybody can hear, and they were known for this, they'd go out into the streets and they'd pray these loud prayers at the top of their voice so that everybody would know that they're communicating with God. If you pray like that, there'll be no reward for you, Jesus said, because you've already got your reward. Your reward is the recognition of men. And when you fast, Jesus said, don't make yourself look all sad and tell everybody about how hungry you are. Oh, I've just been fasting all day, sacrificing for the Lord. No, you've already received your reward in that because you've gotten the acclaim of people. There will be no reward for you in the last day. You've already gotten your reward. You've already been rewarded. But when you do these things, do them in secret. And in this case, do them toward those who cannot possibly repay you. These folks can't invite you back to a dinner party because they don't have dinner parties. They don't have the resources for that. So invite them in. And then, by the way, your Heavenly Father will invite you in. Secondly, why this kind of folks? It's not saying it's wrong to invite your relatives over for dinner. He's saying, what about the outcasts? What about those who have no social standing again? these folks would have been looked at those who were great sinners because why are you blind in the first place? Why are you poor in the first place? In the first century, they, they equated that with your own sinfulness. Why the crippled, the poor, the lame, and the blind? Because that's who we are. Don't miss this you miss this you're going to miss so much of what jesus is putting in front of us we must realize our relationship to the rejected we must realize that when jesus was calling upon this religious leader who was in the upper crust the prioritized of the prioritized when he when he was speaking to this man he was helping this man to understand that spiritually speaking the kinds of folks that I'm asking you to invite to your next dinner party that's you that they might serve as a mirror that you would be able to see past your pride and recognize that before our holy god you are poor that you might recognize that before our Creator, you are blind. That you might recognize before Him that you are crippled and lame and that you don't deserve a seat at His table and yet He has beckoned you to come. 
And so I can remember one Thanksgiving when there just happened to be a spare seat at the fancy table. And everyone had been seated. And my grandfather noticed that there was one seat remaining. And he got up and he came over into the other room to that old nasty card table and us with our paper plates and paper napkins. And we were probably giving each other noogies and all that stuff that you do when you're that age. And he scanned the table of me and my cousins and he looked at my sister who was the youngest at that time and he reached down and took her little hand she was probably seven eight years old and said come on sweetie you're going to come sit with me today and you know immediately what happened the grumbling began What do you mean? Why does she get to sit at the big table? I want to go sit at the big table. And of course, I'm the big brother. I'm the biggest of the grumblers in this moment. What are you talking about? How come she gets to go? She's the littlest. She should be the last one to get to go sit at the big table. And we're grumbling, complaining until my grandfather turns around and gave us the look. Now, if you had a grandfather who had the look, you knew that the look meant you better shut your mouth or you're not going to be able to sit straight for a little while. And so we immediately stopped the grumbling and went back to eating our food. And he led my sister by the hand and set her right beside him at the table. And she enjoyed a privilege that she in no way deserved, but that had been granted by the grace of a loving father who welcomed her to his table. Church, see the promise. See the promise that is for you. As long as we continue living our lives for the people of priority, the rich and the powerful and the prosperous and the popular, We are missing so much of the kingdom. But when we give ourselves to the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, to those who have no ability to repay us, the doors of heaven are flung wide. And the king of glory invites in those that others would simply cast out. And here's what you realize, church. You realize in that moment that it was grace just to be at the kids' table. That in the kingdom of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, I don't deserve to sit on his porch. I don't deserve to be on his property because of my rebellion against him. At best, I may deserve to be in his prison, and at worst, I deserve to be in his graveyard because of my rebellion against him. But in his grace, he steps off of his throne and steps into this world full of sin and brokenness, full of exalting the popular and the proud. He steps into our existence, and on this day, And in Luke chapter 14, he came to a simple, regular, everyday Sunday dinner and he showed them, this is what my kingdom looks like. My kingdom looks like not the elbowing to find a place of position. My kingdom looks like you taking your seat at the kids' table so that, so that the Father may come and he might invite you to come up here and sit next to me. That's what it looks like. May we be the kind of church that willingly takes the seat at the kids' table. That the king might invite us, come up here. Come and sit with me. Here's the point. Eternal rewards 
will come at the final resurrection. All will be made right according to kingdom principles. You see, when we talk about the upside-down way of God, the reality is His perspective is the right perspective. We're the ones that are upside-down. We're the ones that have it all screwed up. We're the ones that are prioritizing the wrong things and the wrong kinds of people. There will be names put up in lights in heaven that none of us knew on this earth. Prayer warriors that went completely unknown. Those who served the broken and the impoverished in ways that would be detestable to us. But they were doing the king's work. Because they recognized that all of us, that all of us are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked in relation to the king. But we've all been welcomed in by his grace. And it would be a privilege even to be at the kids' table. And yet he has bid us to come and dwell in the splendor of his marriage feast. And so Paul says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Church, are we longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are we longing for that last day when everything will be flipped on its head and we will be able to see the fulfillment of the true kingdom? When we will see everything in this world that has been so broken and ravaged and backwards because of sin put right. When the judge of all the earth will show what is good and right and true. And there will be perfect justification. And we will recognize that we were utterly unworthy of even the scraps from his table. And he has given us the very best seat. Which, by the way, is not his. You don't take his seat. But he does invite you to draw up close. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Will you come to that table this morning? You see... We can continue living in that place where worldly principles captivate us, where we're obsessed with celebrity and popularity and prosperity and all of those things. Or we can recognize that this is short-lived. And there is an eternal table and an eternal king who is inviting you to an eternal feast where there will not be a bad seat in the house.